You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Satan, your kingdom must come down. Satan, your kingdom must come down. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Satan, your kingdom must come down. Hello there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. I'm back in the swing of things here, an episode basically every week here recently, uh, which is a good feeling. And I want to introduce today my guest, who is Jonathan Wilson, who I have to say, I just told him off air, I hope I didn't embarrass him, is one of my at least two or three or five favorite Twitter accounts. Uh, he's really terrific. Uh, tweeter. <laughs> he's great at the medium, I will say. Uh, but it's also his his subject matter. He's a really great teacher and he has very wise things to say about teaching. And so I'm really excited uh, to talk to Jonathan Wilson today. He is the author of the Blue Book Diaries blog. And uh, Jonathan, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. How are you doing? Good. Um, I, I have a hard time introducing my guests, so I typically let them do that lifting for me because <laughs> I don't know exactly know what someone wants me to say about them. Would you want to tell the audience a little bit about you? Sure. I describe myself as a freelance history instructor because as an adjunct, I teach sort of whatever needs to be taught. My training is in U.S. intellectual history. I did graduate work at Syracuse University focusing on literary and intellectual culture in early 19th century America, especially New York City and to some extent Philadelphia and Charleston. But today I really teach whatever needs to be taught at institutions where I have uh, an existing relationship. Uh, usually that means history survey courses, typically courses aimed at first-year students, at least that's the assumption, whatever the reality may be. So I teach U.S. history surveys, but also world history surveys, sometimes versions of Western Civ or European history surveys, occasionally something a little uh, more exotic. I've taught at the graduate level as well as the undergraduate level. And I think of myself today fundamentally as a teacher, someone specializing in general education, rather than primarily as a researcher. My scholarly identity has has sort of reformed and coalesced around the work I'm actually doing. And when you describe the blog, Blue Book Diaries, a lot of it is just trying to work out what it is that I've actually ended up doing with my career. You know, that may be why I'm so drawn to your Twitter account, because I feel a very uh, much a kinship. I, I teach, I have a full-time job at one institution, but it's off the tenure track. We don't, we don't have that. So I, I kind of feel a bit off the grid of the higher education conversation that is typically had. Uh, and, and, and I feel like your perspective on it much more closely mirrors my own. And, and the fact that you sort of celebrate being a generalist, right? And I, when you teach at a small institution, you wear many hats and you sort of have to, mm. you know, you're, I call myself a utility infielder. Uh, and, and that's sort of how I, uh, uh, envision my work as well. And so I, I, I think 
there's not enough appreciation for that kind of work in, in education. And very often students, I think, appreciate um, those kinds of professors more than your kind of genius specialists, I think. And in fact, you just won an award. So, um. uh, Yeah, um, an, an award, I guess, probably for being a generalist in some <laughs> sense. I mean, it was it was a an adjunct award specifically or the adjunct portion of an award giving out given out every year at LaSalle University. And I think to some extent I was well placed for that this year because my work has been so general because it ranges so widely. But honestly, like a lot of us, I think I try to be the kind of teacher I wanted to have or appreciated having when I was in college. And I went to a very small uh, it's not really a small liberal arts college, actually, because it was basically an engineering school with a business school attached to it mm. that also had some liberal arts programs. <laughs> but um, it, it had maybe maybe 2,500 students while I was there. Uh, about 2,000 of them were residential uh, undergraduates. And I got to know my professors very well. And my professors became jacks of all trades and didn't spend for the most part, a lot of their time on publication. Uh, they, you know, they spent their time on overloads in the classroom. And although there were disadvantages to that, often I think that resulted in my education being much more of an education with a capital E mm. than it might otherwise have been. Um, it was much more of a dialogue, I think, between my instructors and me and my, and my friends as well. And that's actually a perfect segue into the, the topic that we're going to be talking about today. Um, I want to get to it in a minute. I'm, I think I'm going to call it the conservatism of teaching, um, uh, which is sort of, I think, based on the title of your of your blog post. But I'm suspecting that people will see the title and start yelling at me about the title <laughs> without having listened to the to the uh, to the uh, to the actual discussion. Um, so I'll have to sort of prepare myself for that. But um, but before I get to that, I just want to say I, I my I ran it past Jonathan in conversation planning here. I would kind of envision him coming on a few times here for a little mini series over the next few months um, because his blog is so full of so many interesting ideas from so many different perspectives and there's like kind of too much to squeeze into one um, discussion. And so I was really, um, I'm hoping uh, he's up for it. Depends on how I do, I suppose, today, <laughs> whether, whether he'll come back and or not. And how I do. Well, no, you're doing fine already. I can tell already you'll be great. Uh, and so, uh, but I just want to say, I reached out to Jonathan many moons ago. I don't even remember how long ago and just offering it up there if he ever wants to come on the show, um, just to let me know. And I was very grateful that, um, a few weeks ago, he actually reached out to me and, uh, and asked to, um, to, to appear. And I just want to, uh, how grateful, say how grateful I am for that, but also just extend that invitation out to people who are listening. If you have something that you are really passionate about or really good at or something you're doing, um, don't be shy about reaching out to me. You can find me easily on Twitter at Danny P. Anderson. And, uh, and by all means, um, I'm, I think of myself as a hospitable person. I don't know if it comes across that way to other people, but that's my intention anyway. Um, so let me get to the discussion for today. Uh, it's the, 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 epi the episode, the, uh, the blog post is titled The Conservatism of My Teaching Seven Elements. 
And one thing that I'm sort of drawn to about Jonathan's work in general, but particularly this essay, it shows up, is I'm kind of really drawn to, I have a taste for paradoxes and, uh, and complications of things that people try to kind of level out and make too simple. It's my taste for Kafka comes out of this, I'm sure. Or maybe my taste for Kafka formed this in me. I don't know. But, um, but this, that really comes across in this essay and I find it really, really interesting. Um, Jonathan, do you want to talk about the genesis of the essay? It, it came out of a, a reaction you had to a previous post and, and it's kind of a funny story. This is probably a good place to start. Yeah. I wrote this a little over a year ago, April 2021, I think, partly in response to reactions I got when I wrote another blog post about the Civil War. In the summer of 2020, in the wake of George Floyd's death and during all of the protests of that summer, I wrote an essay offering advice about how to teach the history of the American Civil War in a way that lent itself less to sort of white supremacist and lost cause narratives of the war. Uh, I don't know how familiar that term is to, uh, to all of your listeners necessarily, but the lost cause interpretation of the Civil War is a label we apply to um, accounts of the Civil War that basically take the Confederacy's side. Romantic. That, uh, that suggests that the Confederacy was, in some sense fighting for a noble cause, perhaps a doomed cause, perhaps a cause with a tragic flaw, but still that some that a, a, a good, basically decent Confederate civilization was swept away in the conflict of the 1860s, and that we should view the Civil War as a fundamentally tragic thing, rather than as a fundamentally emancipatory and liberating event. So I wrote an essay talking about how in the classroom, I try to teach in a way that doesn't lend itself to that kind of a nostalgic pro-Confederacy narrative. Uh, talking about how I teach the story of the Civil War as essentially a story about the U.S. military liberating large numbers of people uh, from a totalitarian government. That's essentially how I view that event. And in response to that, unsurprisingly, I got a lot more hate mail than I usually get in response to anything I write. It's actually very uncommon for me to get any responses at all. But a number of people, including a gentleman from, from Lubbock, Texas, apparently, <laughs> uh, emailed me to write about what uh, a flaming leftist they found me to be after I wrote this, um, expressing a lack of appreciation for the way I use the term insurgents, for example, to talk about Confederate fighters in that conflict. And so, <laughs> long story short, the post we're talking about today was my response to those responses. It was my attempt to defend myself in some, in some sense against charges of being a radical leftist in the way I approach teaching history. Not because I necessarily object to being called a leftist, although I'm not sure it's necessarily a, a, a great label for me anyway, but because I think of my teaching as fundamentally a very conservative thing. And I honestly think that a lot of liberals and leftists in the academy are also actually doing very conservative things when they teach U.S. history or the history of other societies as well. 
Yeah, and it's a really great point. And you have this really handy chart uh, that you've kind of like <laughs> uh, like teased out essential differences in pedagogical approaches to teaching between progressive and conservative. Um, and let me just kind of read through the on the progressive side, um, seek social transformation. Coupled on the conservative side, seek individual formation. On the progressive side, fosters development of new ideas. The conservative side fosters participation in traditions. And I won't go through the whole list, but you've kind of teased out a really, I think, fundamentally sound uh, list of, of differences between the, the, the two ideologies as we describe them. And you can see how they roughly map on to our political ideas of conservatism and, and progressivism, right? Um, yeah, go ahead. You want to say something? In, yeah, in the schema you're describing, there is actually a relationship between more progressive pedagogies and more uh, and progressive politics yeah. and between more conservative pedagogies and more conservative politics. That that relationship does exist, I think. Um, when I talk about pedagogical conservatism, I'm referring to something that actually does have something to do indirectly with our partisan politics. But I also argue that actually I think most educators borrow from both of these lists. I think most people in the classroom, perhaps without even thinking about it in many cases, will end up trying to teach for both social transformation and individual formation. We'll try to teach um, both in ways that foster creativity in the student and in ways that acknowledge what we've received from experts and that we sometimes need to defer in some sense to their authority because we can't learn ev we can't discover everything for ourselves for the first time sometimes we have to accept on trust that the experts are are right at least provisionally mm -hmm. as we move forward so i'm not trying to say that pedagogy should be all one or the other in this essay i'm just trying to describe those conservative elements that are there in my teaching whether they were intentionally put there or not, and, and whatever my own political views might happen to be, I think the seven elements I describe in this post are all fundamentally conservative things. I, I agree. And, and I, you have a really interesting point that you make under that chart. The differences, and I'm quoting here, the differences between conservative and progressive educational approaches may be less important than the tensions within each approach. Conservatives may encounter, for instance, a tension between a community's tradition and modern disciplinary expertise. Progressives may find that the self-actualization of students in a rich school may be at odds with general social equality. And, and that's a line like that just makes my brain light up because that's exactly the kind of like uh, tension-filled paradox that I, I, I fundamentally see the world as, uh, as made up of. And so I really, I really appreciate that. And there's, there's been a lot of discussion uh, in public of the paradoxes of progressive educational theories in expensive private schools. And people like Barry Weiss and uh, Caitlin Flanagan have, have published in major venues, sort of making the most, I think, of the tensions that exist there. Um, but these are tensions that we're never really going to be free of, I think. Right. Every educational opportunity, every educational venue involves inescapable tensions in what we are trying to achieve if only because they include different kinds of people 
from different kinds of circumstances. The educational enterprise is always about dealing with some kind of diversity, and that means a diversity of needs, a diversity of, of economic means, and a diversity of aims as well, because uh, different students and different instructors see life differently, necessarily so. Yeah. I, I If I can speak just personally, I, I teach sort of in central Pennsylvania in the kind of nether regions between Johnstown and Altoona. And uh, <laughs> is where those places are. Um, and so I have a very different kind of student than typically gets talked about in the great debates about higher education. And right. so, so much of the things that really light up you know, teaching Twitter, uh, never really even register with my students. Um, these things about woke culture and, and, uh, cancel culture and all these kinds of things. Like it's just, uh, my students are completely, they don't care at all about any of this stuff. It, like it doesn't, it doesn't right. reflect their reality at all. And so when we have, oh, advice about teaching pedagogical best practices being discussed on, in these forums, in these kind of big, you know, mostly focused on elite institutions, um, about here's what you should do with students today. It does not work with my students today in this place. Right. And so I can do things in my, with my students that people tell me I shouldn't be able to do. Right. <laughs> because my students just right. are operating on a different register than, um, other people. Right. And so that kind of localism, um, is really important to, um, to remember. And one of your points we'll get to later is sort of the calling into question of, uh, how did you put it? Um, uh, the, the skepticism of abstractions, uh, when you talk about Russell Kirk and all that. And I think that really comes to play, uh, in discussing my students here and like a single ideology does not fit my students in the way that it fits someone at Oberlin College or something like that, right? Exactly. And of course, we could raise questions about how much the reputation of an Oberlin College actually matches the realities of the students there. But what I can say, having taught in Scranton, Pennsylvania for several years at two different institutions with two pretty different demographic profiles, having taught in uh, North Philadelphia, essentially, at LaSalle University, which is a very different institution with very different students, having taught in, in southern New Jersey as well, which uh, is its own sort of place connected with Philadelphia. Um, in all of these cases, I've found that things that people think are the urgent uh, educational issues of the day often have very little to do with the urgent needs of my students, educationally or personally, or in many cases, very little to do with their actual politics either. The, the, the things that sort of light them up politically are not necessarily things that are going to show up in the editorial pages of the New York Times or the Atlantic or Vox or wherever it would be. <laughs> the places that publish such things, right? Um, yeah. And honestly, that's a great thing about your perspective. You have this widely diverse perspective on a number of different student bodies and you're sort of attuned to the failure of a lot of these grand narratives um, on, on kind of local levels. I, I don't know. I did not prepare you for this. And so just tell me if you don't want to talk about it. Are you aware of the, I'm sure you're aware of the uh, recent John Malasek uh, New York times article about our, my college students are 
struggling uh and it was yeah and it was yes a, i did read a, that there was a dust up on twitter about it as he expected john actually came on this show to talk about an essay that he had written for common wheel a couple of years ago called drinking alone and john Nolisic mm. is a, a really i mean one of my favorite writers now and um his excellent book on burnout i highly recommend i, I just am about halfway through it myself it's, it's really good so far um, but he wrote recently, two or three weeks ago, published an essay for the New York Times opinion uh, column, basically suggesting that the COVID protocols had damaged student engagement and um, students wanted uh, and needed um, the kind of rigor, let's say, of, of the traditional classroom practices and, and holding people to deadlines and that kind of thing, right? Um, now, frankly, the essay really closely matched my experience with my students <laughs> and so um and yet there were people who vociferously took um a exception to it one of the really interesting twitter conversations that came out of it were between john melisic and john warner who also appeared on this show actually to talk about his book about teaching writing a few years ago and so they had a really somewhat tentious uh but i think ultimately mm -hmm. civil uh disagreement about um john's uh essay and i i I think one point that you, I don't know if I saw you make this point, um, or I just maybe it feels like something you would say, um, is that these one size fits all solutions don't necessarily hold. I don't know if that's something you actually that does said. Sound like <laughs> okay. So you want to talk about? Uh, yeah. So my my take on the essay in question is essentially it it describes an experience I've seen too that a lot of students really need. Uh, in-person instruction, but also, you know, in-person experiences generally on a college campus and face-to-face -face interactions, you know, that not behind masks. Now, I say that having remained masked to the end of this spring in the classroom, even when my institutions lifted mask mandates, because that seemed like the best way to maintain continuity and avoid getting sick in a, in a way that would cause problems for my students before the semester ended. So I think a lot of people focused on one of the bottom lines of that article, which is we need a return to in-person, face-to-face, unmasked teaching in order for our students to, to really thrive. And I think perhaps they overlooked the, well, rightly or wrongly, I'm not going to judge them too harshly for this, but they... I think perhaps overlooked how much of that essay was about establishing, you know, just how much nothing we've tried during the pandemic has really solved the problem. For me, the bottom line is is different, I think, from from what it is for a lot of people. And that bottom line is just educators didn't invent the pandemic. We we did not cause this and we don't have a pedagogical solution for it. Nothing we do in the classroom or in the Zoom classroom or in asynchronous online learning or in any other form, nothing we do is actually going to address that key problem that the pandemic exists and it poses dangers not only to our students physically, but also to our students emotionally and to their families. Mm -hmm. I taught students who were actually caring for immunocompromised relatives in the spring of 2020 for whom the pandemic represented a really a literally existential threat not only to people they loved but to their whole system of living if the student themselves were not 
in danger than their whole support structure socially and emotionally and spiritually was in danger in that context. Um, I, I taught students who, you know, at, at various points over the last two years were living with the specter of a relative dying at any moment or were living with the economic damage wrought for their families or for them personally. Um, in some cases, the pandemic weirdly opened up new opportunities to work, to earn money that they desperately needed to earn if they could. Mm -hmm. But those new opportunities, of course, took them away from their studies. So there was this paradoxical effect that in order to avoid a huge debt burden later on, they had to step further away from their studies now. And of course, Professors all over the country report high absenteeism from class. That's in-person classes and Zoom classes. It doesn't, it hasn't really mattered as far as I can tell. Everything we have tried has cost some students their like rightful academic success. And that's my takeaway from that, from that editorial it is just, it's an, it's an example of the falsehood of promises of a pedagogical solution to the pandemic. It's not a pedagogical event, fundamentally. Yeah, I, I would completely agree with all of that, right? And um, and yeah, I my students generally um, appreciated in-person classes, but there were exceptions, right? There were people who frankly never came around to in-person classes once we started having them again. And we actually had them, I mean, with the exception of the first wave of COVID in the spring of 2020, um, we canceled basically, or we went online for the rest of that semester. Um, but the following fall all the way through, um, we maintained in-person classes. We were masked up to about the middle of this semester. Um, mm -hmm. but, um, but, and then, and then many people continued to choose to mask, but, um, but yeah, so we actually maintained, it actually functioned pretty well. Like we didn't, <laughs> we didn't have a huge outbreak at any given moment and, and it actually functioned pretty well. As far as I know, no one had any, um, debilitating effects from this. Um, as far as I know, like I said, um, but so yeah, there is a way in which, um, that a discussion like this always gets sort of hijacked <laughs> and taken in an unintended direction. Right. And, and so I think that happened with Malisic's article. I think a lot of your ed tech, uh, enthusiasts, uh, just saw it as an attack on their being and, uh, and went with it from there. And, you know, I, I think that's understandable right, fundamentally. Yeah. This is this is one of the difficulties with social media conversations about pedagogy generally. Yeah. I think what we have to remember is that we need to be putting positive things out there. This has been, you know, one of the reasons that this blog exists is it yeah. it it's meant to articulate um more complicated views than I could express in other media and it's meant to identify things that do work, uh, things that do have value in the work that I'm doing. Yeah. Blue Book Diaries is the name of the blog. I'll put a link in the description to the show uh, for that and to Jonathan's uh, wonderful Twitter account. Um, and so he, he's, a, he's a great follow. Um, uh, and I just want one more thing about that. I also feel like John uh, Malisic, I feel like he was um, unlucky enough to have published that at a time when it's become fashionable to trash the New York Times uh, opinion <laughs> columns, it's become like almost a, 
it's almost like a cause celeb on Twitter is every time something is published in the New York Times, let's trash them the paper of record. And I think Jonathan or John was a, a little bit the victim of that on some level as well. Well, and I can't deny that that's a self-inflicted wound <laughs> on the Times' part. Me neither. I, I'm not. I'm not suggesting they deserve otherwise. But, um, but yes, I feel like it's sort of bad timing on John's part for that. But nonetheless, uh, let's move on to your essay. Um, so there are basically seven elements that uh, of conservatism that you would, um, or seven conservative elements that you would categorize as being kind of essential to your teaching. And I just want to kind of take us through um, them in in order, if that's okay. Uh, And and you could just sort of like say a little bit about each one. But the first one is a a belief in education as an invitation to participate in traditions and a catalyst for growth in moral character. Um, And that definitely sounds conservative. So uh, what is it that you mean? I think on some level every educator does embrace this vision. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily put it first in their list of things education should be about. But fundamentally, all of us are probably trying to invite our students into something that already exists before they get there. We are trying to invite them into, sometimes it's a discipline, we're initiating them into a set of procedures and practices and attitudes that can produce new forms of knowledge and understanding. Uh, In my view, it's important to remember that disciplines exist before we get to them. Uh, That's in the nature of the thing. They are not arbitrary constructions. They are constructions, but we didn't build them ourselves. I think educators broadly also probably think that they are engaged in a moral enterprise that is they that one of the things that we're trying to draw students into is at the very least a mode of moral reasoning Mm -hmm. we are not necessarily trying to provide you know ready-made conclusions to moral questions although i think maybe that happens more often than we think but we're certainly trying to draw students into and and introduce them to existing conversations about what is good um and i you know i I do think that thinking about the good society or thinking about the good life is intrinsically a moral activity it's it's about internal attitudes as well as an external environment and here again i think you know the the most um radically coded educator, I guess, in their approach to teaching has some element of this in in one form or another. And often it's actually very explicit. If you read, you know, sort of uh, uh, touchstones of progressive education today, uh, like, you know, the work of Paulo Freire or, um, you know, the work of Bell Hooks, um, you encounter this highly developed moral world that they are trying that, you know, that they're talking about letting students into. I, I Yes, go ahead. And, and that's one of the paradoxes, right, from a progressive point of view. On some level, I think they would deny that's what they're doing, but they are actually doing it just in, in terms that they've defined differently. Well, and I think it, I think in many cases it might actually be a point of difference between some of the classic theorists and some of the people implementing their work in an institutional context today Mm -hmm. um there's a i believe it's in the 
introduction to uh, Frere's pedagogy of the oppressed, uh, there is this comment that he expects his work to be well received by Marxists and by Christians, <laughs> while other people may be resistant to his work. Because for him, this is all sort of one one fabric of a spiritual mindset in many ways. He is not wedded to the idea that there is a contradiction between a, a religious reality and sort of a Marxist reality. Um, as I think probably many of the people reading his work in the United States would assume, you know, regardless of their political views. Yeah. Um, Bill Hook, similarly, it, it has all kinds of things to say about, about community and about love in highly prescriptive moralistic ways that I, I think the author is actually conscious of very much. So when you read her work, the problem is in our institutional contexts, we often try to, downplay the moral prescriptive element of all of this because you know we're we're trying to avoid um being challenged as narrow and sectarian you know we want to be as open as possible to to different perspectives but that is also a moral commitment is part of the argument i'm making pluralism involves a moral commitment um openness Though the liberal society, and you know the, the the sense that I have in mind, is very much uh, a matter of moral value, and I try to embrace that, and I try to articulate that explicitly because I don't think it actually serves my interests as an educator to deny that that's there, um, particularly when my profession is under attack as a supposedly amoral thing, a supposedly um, uh, you know, a, 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 something that's supposedly at odds with traditional moral values. And, and uh, you know, my answer to that is actually, no, I'm doing the same thing that educators have been doing for centuries. I'm doing the same thing that a school teacher in, you know, the, the little red schoolhouse out on the prairie, we imagine them doing. I am inviting students into a moral community. Yeah, I, I completely agree with this. And often I feel like every political side we'll see the work of the other political side as doing pernicious versions of that, right? <laughs> so they want to deny that they're doing that uh, in, in their own way, right? Uh, and so to me, this, um, I, of course, once again, will throw a, I'm trying to, this is my little personal project to insert Matthew Arnold into the collective subconscious of the world. And so I'm going to just mention Matthew Arnold uh, and his, I, in his own day, was kind of derided by fellow liberals um, for what was seemed to be a rather conservative um idea about the best that has been thought and, and said and the idea of culture, um, which is always misunderstood. Um, and an established church. And, yes, exactly. Um, well, so that, much of his work is about the Anglican establishment that, as, you know, a kind of a moral framework. His, um, yeah, like religious writings are like wildly like under read, right? And, and it is very, very interesting the way in which that is. Um, one thing that Arnold to his strength and weakness is he was really great at sloganeering, right? And so he came mm -hmm. up with these slogans that people would then kind of, I think, misunderstand what he means by them because the slogans would kind of stand by themselves. So when he's talking about culture, what he's talking about is not necessarily 
like an E.D. Hirsch, you know, uh, list of the great Western canon that you need to memorize, right? Uh, what he's talking about is this process of perfection um, that's drawn on the traditions of the past, which you kind of interrogate uh, and, and perfect over time within yourself, right? So it's actually, um, it, it's quite a dialectic that he's actually talking about when he's when he's discussing culture. But liberals who want to just kind of think of him as, you know, old white man who just wants you to read the classics, right? <laughs> Like, uh, never kind of get past that, uh, that, that discussion. So, um, but this is about you and not Matthew Arnold. So, um, the, the next thing I want to talk about or in your list actually is what I was talking about with Russell Kirk before a skepticism of abstractions combined with a faith in the power of ideas. And so this is a really interesting, I, uh, and kind of complex idea that you're bringing up here. Uh, so why don't you talk about it? Well, it's complex partly because I think Russell Kirk completely failed his own test. Yeah. <laughs> Russell, Russell Kirk is writing these extremely ideological condemnations of ideology, <laughs> which makes it difficult to, uh, honestly, makes it difficult to talk about him with a straight face for me because I just cannot get past that. And the photo, but that's why I used him in this and post. The, and the photo you example. use, the photo you use of him is like a perfect. <laughs> embodiment <laughs> it's just a hilarious picture of a very self-important man <laughs> well, yeah he, well he really looks like uh an extra from a john le carre movie i think in that in that photo someone who's trying to look inconspicuous and failing it's a very strange picture yes. go ahead talk more about the abstractions um yeah yeah i invoked russell kirk you know very deliberately because I, I want to establish, for one thing, that I know what I'm talking about when I talk <laughs> about conservatism. Sure. I could also have talked about Michael Oakeshott, for example, as an educational theorist. But there is, at least in the way conservatives with a capital C have thought about themselves in the 20th century in the United States, there is this attempt to be skeptical of ideology in general. This attempt to be skeptical of intellectual systems as opposed to the lived realities of tradition, I think is how it is, is how it's often seen. Um, you know, Russell Kirk, as I quote him here, talks about conservatism as the negation of ideology, a state of mind, a type of character, a way of looking at the civil social order sustained by a body of sentiments rather than by a system of ideological dogmata. Yeah. As I say, I think Russell Kirk himself was a very ideological person who arguably was not really in contact with his own social order very, very much. Um, my, you know, my flavor of conservatism from that era is very much the conservatism of Peter Vierick, mm. the conservatism of suggesting that sort of the New Deal state is is the conservative order of our day um, and that it's counter revolutions of the kind that that the new right sort of proposed having, I think, are actually not very conservative at all. But that's taking us in a, in a completely different direction. <laughs> Maybe for the a point future is, show. <laughs> Go ahead. To the extent that Kirk is right in how he described conservatism, that's how I see my teaching. I study ideas. I am, by training, an intellectual historian. But being an intellectual historian means viewing ideas not as these eternal crystalline things that are are timelessly true or false but seeing them as human processes as solutions that communities have come up with 
to um, to address specific and evolving problems over time. Here, I think uh, we could draw a distinction between historians of ideas and intellectual historians, perhaps. Historians of ideas, in many ways, are, are operating much more as philosophers and sort of with a different discipline. Um, they're, they're trying to treat ideas usually as a little bit more timeless. But intellectual historians are very much about how ideas evolve, how ideas are contingent, how uh, ideas involve paradoxes that, that turn into contradictions when social conditions change. And all of that is consistent with how I see the teaching of history. I'm writing about how human beings in different periods have coped with complicated realities and have come up with ideas that address those realities. Um, and I think my students are part of that story, that we are in... in an educational environment in, in 2022, we are part of a tradition of treating ideas as tools to use in a real world um, and using them as things that we have gotten from our ancestors. Mm -hmm. uh, we, do, we don't invent ideas uh, when we enter the classroom. We, and we don't really rediscover them either. We come in with ideological systems that have to be examined. No, I think that's great. And the idea of the suggestion that you're making about how there's sort of built-in tensions to any given idea, I'm currently thinking about how appalled I am about the, the establishment of this so-called Department of Disinformation, <laughs> you know, like, and what that's going to actually look like under subsequent um, regimes of power. Like I, it's just a terrifying, um, terrifyingly short-sighted idea. That's what I would say. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I have my doubts about whether any institution like that will actually, uh, amount to anything. And I haven't looked into the details of it, so I won't comment too much, but yeah. I, you know, I do think that any attempt to, um, to crystallize and institutionalize a certain set of ideas ends up causing problems for educators in the real world. Yes. Um, and one of the things I'm arguing in this essay is that educators are actually naturally very pragmatic yeah. about those things, sometimes without realizing it. Because in the classroom, you just can't get away with the kinds of ideological rigidity while still teaching effectively that, that some people outside of classrooms imagine that you do. And that's actually a perfect transition into the third point, which is a belief in educational structure, but not micromanagement. Cause there you get into sort of things like the uh, no child left behind act, uh, which are, political instantiations of these ideas that actually cause problems for educators. <laughs> go, but go ahead. Yeah. I, uh, yes. I am speaking, uh, of course, as someone who works in, in colleges. I have a lot of friends who work in a K-12 environment, though, um, who experience firsthand the results of uh, a rigid testing regimen and all of the effects of sort of what the so-called reforms of the George W. Bush and, and Obama years as well have wrought in terms of, honestly, I think there's a lot of evidence. It, it may be circumstantial evidence, but there's a lot of evidence that 
these reforms have in fact sapped a lot of the joy from learning for a lot of public school students that they have inhibited our ability to teach flexibly and to um you know direct students according to their own natures uh, toward uh things that interest them and to use their interests to then lead them into new forms of knowledge and to promote uh firsthand discovery by students all of the things that you know would go into the blog post about how I'm a progressive educator at heart. Right. Um, but conservatism historically has been, or at least has presented itself as being skeptical of central planning, skeptical of centralized micromanagement by bureaucrats, by experts. I invoked Michael Oakeshott earlier. This is a lot, you know, this coincides very much with Michael Oakeshott's uh, critique of rationalism in politics, which is actually partly an account of education and how education works. You know, Oakeshott argues um, fairly famously that you you have to be sort of inside a system of knowledge to really understand it, um, that you can't just transfer discrete concepts, you know, uh, propositions to a student and have that student actually be educated in a real way. Uh, all of this works together, I think, in my suspicion that micromanaging teachers is almost always a bad thing to do, that it results in a lack of responsiveness to what students actually need, that it results in uh, overly rigid adherence to ideological uh, abstractions uh, so that realities like, I mean, a, a moral duty to love your neighbor turns into this specific sets, a specific set of sort of boxes to check in terms of how you have been inclusive of very specific different identities, which may be a good thing in, in terms of the bottom line. But when you teach to the test, ideologically or literally, I think you end up with education that doesn't actually work to cultivate the values it's meant to cultivate. Um, and I've seen this in the classroom, and, and students resist this, as, especially as they get older. Students, by their high school years, are very good at pushing back against rigid ideological programming um, that amounts to a kind of intellectual teaching to the test. They're much better at that than I think critics of so-called woke education sometimes realize um the students are very good at 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 dispensing with superficial and in intellectual programs uh and i think a lot of our conversations about what happens in classrooms is fundamentally misguided as a result because we don't understand how much students actually take charge of their own educations whether we want them to or not Absolutely. Right. And, and I think that that's actually something that I think was underemphasized in the Malisic art article. Um, the fact that they're burned out in general on education before they ever come to college. Right. right. <laughs> they they think it's all BS and they're not wrong. Right. Uh, there, there's a way in which they're just uh, they've been trained to understand education as a vacant and hollow thing. And then when those of us who are trying to do something more kind of personally invigorating, as you're describing here, I, we're, it's like introducing them to something they have no context for at this point, and, and they right. don't even know how to engage in that kind of education. So a very natural response is to just sort of sit back and disengage and, and, and wait for it all to be over, <laughs> right? That, that's kind of, a, yeah. Right. I think, you know, a lot of 
I mean, a lot of educators at all levels are doing what they can. The thing is, at the college level, for the most part, we're much less regimented. So a lot of us have the freedom to try to undo, yeah. I think, as we see it, the damage of overly prescriptive educational uh, regimens yeah. um, to, to show students that actually learning can be a joyful thing yeah. across disciplines in disciplines that the student thought they had no interest in. Yeah. Um, you know, we at, at the college level, we're we have more freedom to try different things. And those things can look very much like progressive pedagogy with a capital P, conservative pedagogy with a capital C. Um, in practice, as I'm arguing here, usually they're a mix of things. Yeah. Um, you know, supposedly progressive educational methods are often actually very, very old. The Socratic method was old when Socrates got to it. <laughs> the actual traditional way of teaching historically has been much more a matter of dialogue yeah. than a matter of passive receipt of information yeah. the way we sometimes imagine. Which is very mechanical, right? And, and it's, it's one thing, again, going back to Arnold, that he was very against in this emerging Victorian society. It was the, the mechanization of, of human relations in, in all levels. And he was an inspector of schools. And so that's what he did for a living is going around and, and witnessing classrooms all across England. And, um, and so, yeah, he had a very kind of firsthand experience of that. And I think that, um, it's one reason I'm such a, a stan for, for Matthew Arnold. But, um, but no, I, I think you're totally right about all of that. And honestly, if I can say, and you can totally disagree with this is my own personal opinion. Um, my maybe primary hesitation about the idea of free college is that coming with the free college is this sort of like, now you need to prove that we're getting our money's worth and, and we'll end up with the same testing regime at the college level, which I feel like is the last bastion of uh, possibility of this kind of free education. And I think, um, I mean, the free college debate, I have treated that as not my bailiwick, even though I probably should be. I'm not deeply invested in those debates. I will say that what happens in community colleges su suggests that that may be a valid concern. Mm. Community colleges, which are much closer to being free than any other form of higher education in the United States, typically do have a lot more regimentation. Um, sometimes uh, full-time faculty members may have a lot more freedom with syllabuses than adjuncts do. You know, working as an adjunct in a four-year college, I've always had substantial control over my syllabus. It, it, assignments, assignment structure, content coverage, you know, almost everything is is up to me within certain very broad parameters. If I were an adjunct at a community college, in most parts of the country, probably I would be getting a syllabus handed to me. Yeah. I would have a little bit of flexibility in what to do with it, but often the textbooks are, are pre-assigned and often the assessment methods are as well. So I think the movement for free college does raise concerns Yeah. Um, because, yes, public accountability is often understood in these ways that are are not conducive to the kinds of flexibility that instructors and students need. Yeah. And now, I mean, the timing of your answer is perfect to go into the next, uh, the next point because it's pushing back a little bit now on, on, uh, uh, maybe a paradox in your own thought here is the idea of teaching an established, uh, body of knowledge. Um, all, and then you, but you make the um, caveat of it being flexible and evolving to sort of represent, you know, diverse opinions. So, the idea is we just talked about how bad regimented education is 
And yet on some level, you think everyone should take sort of a, a smaller core set of classes. Uh, and, and reconcile that contradiction for me, Jonathan. Well, there are, there are two things happening here. Okay. One is a longstanding concern of mine that I think we need more required core courses, more required general education courses. Um, I think we need... And I think this is actually a very practical need. I think higher education has been poorly served by de-emphasizing general education because often those are the courses that really fire students up. Um, it might not be in every course. Now, you know, maybe there are more failures than successes, but it's very common in my experience going back to my own years as a, as a college student that it's a general education course in a subject that a student didn't expect to like, mm. that they had to take, that often opens up higher education as a thing mm. to the student in, in fundamentally new ways, including new ways of approaching their own chosen specializations. I'm not even talking about, you know, changing majors or anything like that. I'm just saying in terms of conceptualizing what education is for. And I think there should be a broad consensus that, you know, uh, composition courses, by the time they're done, should teach certain skills that students can take with them into other courses. History courses, by the time they're done, need to cover certain key concepts that will be important later on in ways that students may not anticipate and in ways that frankly instructors may not see coming either um, but can just sort of take for granted so there's this curriculum level yeah. uh, paradox involved here that i actually am in favor of a lot of structure in terms of what courses students are supposed to take and specific things those courses those courses are supposed to involve that professors should be able to uh, should should be able to solve as problems in very flexible ways for themselves. Yeah. Um, so that's maybe a superficial paradox. <laughs> you know, that, that flexibility on the course level, structure on the curriculum level. Yeah. At the same time, though, there is this way that my own thinking has gotten much more conservative over time, and that is that in teaching introductory history courses. And this probably took root first with U.S. history courses for me. I have become more concerned with the way a lot of students can get through however many years of education um, without having ever been exposed to a lot of topics that historians consider really crucial for understanding the world. Um, this is something that takes me in a very different direction from some theorists of historical education. A lot of historians at the university level, let's say, have gone in exactly the opposite direction in that they have tried to de-emphasize content coverage, as we would call it. They have tried to de-emphasize the idea that there are certain things that students must learn by the time a course is done. And they're much more interested in exploring case studies and specific examples because they think that what students really need is to understand that history is a mode of inquiry. It's a way of thinking about the world. I used to work much more in that latter mode than I do now in my introductory courses because it occurred to me, partly through experiences I had in, in class, that a lot of my students were not learning things that I considered fundamental 
fundamental for understanding the courses they were having and and the world that that they were living in uh, a particularly egregious example came up with one of my students several years ago who in uh, an extra credit opportunity related to black history month wrote me something sort of an essay about an event that that this student attended on campus wrote me something that said and i'm paraphrasing reasonably closely um that white Americans built this country, and if other people are uncomfortable with that, they can go somewhere else. And this is a student who had had, I think, my modern U.S. history course, and the specific reasoning involved was more about early U.S. history, that this student was thinking about, um, you know, the American founding and thinking of the United States as this thing that had been founded by Europeans. And that moment uh, struck really deep in me as an educator, as a moment of clear failure, not just on my part, but on my part enough mm. that, that a student could get through a large part of one of my courses and have the impression that the United States is this white creation that African Americans, and presumably he thinks other groups as well, have just sort of been invited into out of the goodness of white Americans' hearts. Mm. And I changed the way I teach partly to make sure that that didn't happen the next semester. <laughs> that a student would have a much harder time getting that impression. Now, a lot of people would push back on this, I think, and say, that wasn't about content coverage, that was about, you know, my failure to include enough black voices, for example, in the conversation. But I'm not sure that's actually true, because I don't think anything other than teaching the U.S. founding in a different way would address the problem of thinking of the American founders as white. Mm. And I think a lot of courses have kind of de-emphasized teaching the founding as a thing at all. In, in favor of uh, in favor of other things and my suspicion it's not something i can prove but my suspicion is that when a student like that has an idea like that it's an idea that they had long before they got to college and it's an idea that nothing except direct confrontation will dislodge and the thing is there are a lot of cases like that if i address the founding of the United States specifically to try to dislodge that idea, there are countless other examples of that idea coming up in this student's mind, whether it's, um, you know, thinking of this, the American Civil War as something that white soldiers fought to mm. free black Americans, for example. It's a very common view. Um, I think I need to address these deeply ingrained cultural myths. I think I need to do something more, which is I need to offer a comprehensively different story, a comprehensively, in my view, truer story that covers the breadth of American history in a better way than what students have gotten before. I don't think it's enough to attack these myths piecemeal. I think I need to try to replace them with a different story of what the United States has been from start to today. Yeah. That's, <clears throat> um, that's really powerful stuff. Uh, and I have to um, um, say that really speaks to me because yeah, there is a way in which we feel like, you know, you sprinkle in a certain kind of like 
representation formula and it solves <laughs> and it solves curricular mm-hmm. problems, right? And, and I think that that's actually not true. You have to kind of go to the actual uh, motive of the class itself. And I, I think that's a really, really powerful point you make there. Um, right. And, and go ahead. let me, to give credit where it's due, you know, there is a limit to what I can do as a white man to push back against... Yeah. Uh, harmful narratives. Um, there is an extent to which my being a white man in the classroom does actually mean that I am still sort of reinforcing the idea that white men get to interpret the U.S. story. Yeah. Um, there are limits, therefore, to what I can accomplish this way. It's just that my experience has been that teaching a a story with lots of stuff in yeah. it lots of specific things to cover, lots of examples of what I need to convey seems to have been more effective in correcting these myths, these, these large scale talk, large scale, excuse me, toxic narratives about what the United States is or about world history as well. Although students come in with fewer preconceptions about world history. Yeah. Well, and just for the sake of continuity with where we're at in this conversation, I'd like to go a little bit out of order um, and, mm-hmm. and skip to your sixth uh, point, which is a belief in large scale narratives as tools, not only for student engagement, but also for s- developing student understanding. I feel like you've already been talking a little bit about this. And just from my own personal perspective as a teacher, I have found as I've, you know, anything you do, more you do get better at. And so one of the things that I, I have found that works better for me is to sort of, when I'm doing a, a, a topical class, my horror film class, for example, I sort of select a few kind of overarching narratives that we, that can be revisited over and over through time. Uh, and these different movies talk to each other on some level about the same issues. And we kind of build mm-hmm. a conversation on that. So that's my version of doing this frankly, for something that's less important than what you're doing. And so I would love to hear your perspective um, about uh, about this. Well, these two points are so closely related that I think probably it could have been one. I could have six principles okay. uh, inst- instead of seven, but seven's a better number. <laughs> In any case, a lot of historians are uncomfortable with national narratives, especially sometimes for, for valid reasons. You know, they are trying to escape from nationalistic framings of, of history. Um, but also, I think they have the sense that all, all grand narratives, you know, inherently exclude people. They all present some people as heroes and some people implicitly, at least, as villains. They, they all have, you know, they, they, they all have winners and losers who, who get short shrift in, in the, the stories that we tell um, in unfair ways. And these criticisms are, are valid, actually, I think. I, I, don't have a, I don't have an approach that solves the problem. Mm-hmm. I don't pretend to. What I do say is that students have to have these large-scale narratives in order to make sense of what we're trying to teach them. I, I don't think that it is possible not to have these narratives, and the question is going to be who supplies them, yeah, and, they already, and what uh, kinds of narratives are supplied, and that includes national narratives. You know, I, my way of teaching U.S. history survey courses is not the reason that my students are American nationalists. Right. They are American nationalists long before they ever get to college. Exactly. Because they have been raised in the American nation. This is this is not something that I, I mean th- this is not something that an instructor is is going to fix one way or another. So my 
answer to this this question of how should we be teaching U.S. history is to say we should be teaching it in a way that allows students to see the narratives as narratives, that allows students to ask questions about what the American nation is, rather than assuming that it doesn't exist, because it does exist for them. It's a social construct. Social construct, co constructs are very powerful things. They don't cease to exist by being ignored. Um, not that people who take a different approach are completely ignoring them, but I think they are overlooking how much anything we do teach will get slotted into an existing narrative, because that's the only way that students can, can, can make sense, can, can create coherence of what we're teaching. If I teach a course in U.S. history that focuses on five big case studies, for example, my students, I believe, consciously or unconsciously, are slotting those five case studies into a narrative they already have. It might be a narrative without a lot of detail in it. It might be a narrative of overall, you know, onward progress for freedom and, and equality in the United States. It might be a, a declension narrative for some students, probably not as many, but some. Um, but that narrative is there because that's the only way they can figure out what we're talking about when we talk about the Vietnam War, or if, if the case study is in, you know, the civil rights movement, or, you know, if I have a unit in the Roaring Twenties, whatever, whatever it is, the only way for students to conceptualize it is to put it in that kind of timeline. So my proposal is to try to create courses that allow students to see the timelines and to see them as constructed things, that allow students to see that... Uh, that they have been given a story and that there might be different ways of telling this story about the United States or about modernity, if we're talking about, you know, modern world history or um, or what, whatever the larger narrative is. Uh, the, the other part of this is fundamentally, I am really, conser really uh, conservative in my comfort level with teaching U.S. history as such. Not necessarily because I am a nationalistic person at heart, but because the United States is a very powerful part of our lives. The U.S. government exercises a lot of power in the world we live in today. And I think teaching a history of the United States that examines the United States specifically is often the only way to interrogate the way power works in the United States. So what I'm proposing is that a very conservative traditional framing of a U.S. history survey course can actually be the best way to achieve progressive ends in, in many cases. Yeah, that's uh, a fantastic like way to describe the paradox again, what you're talking about. And what you're saying here is basically the fifth point of this that we kind of skipped over was a pragmatic acceptance of the nation state's central role uh, in modern political and social life, right? And so the fifth and sixth points are really kind of, they do go together as part of that grand narrative. Um, and, and I will say from the perspective of my discipline in, in English and rhetoric and that, that general field of communication i feel like there's a a hubris uh in, in in my a lot of people in my field that we can think we can teach people to think better right and we they have faulty information about the world and if i teach them logic 
they won't fall for fake news anymore, right? And, and I feel like that is such a, that's an ignorance, uh, that betrays an ignorance of the pre-existing grand narratives that students come into school with, right? And so right. the information we give them is already just going to be aimed at an existing grand narrative. And it's the grand narrative itself that you have to sort of like address. Exactly. And there is a lot of research on this. You know, there, there, there's a book that I really like. It's more than 20 years old now, but Knowing Teaching and Learning in History. It's a volume of essays that I refer to in a lot of contexts. Um, some of the essays in this book, I happen to have it right here, actually. Uh, Peter Stearns is one of, one of the editors, and Sam Weinberg as well, who's done a lot of research on uh, history pedagogy. Um, they, the essays in this book point out that by the time they're high schoolers, students have been watching you know, at the time of this book, it was Saving Private Ryan, for example, that's giving them a story, a, a, a narrative of what the U.S. was doing in the Second World War. Long before college, probably before they before stepping into a history classroom. And you know, the authors of, of this essay, uh, you know, show with with in-depth research that students are capable of forming these narratives for themselves just out of cultural materials. Yeah. Uh, there's another essay in this collection by Dennis Schimmelt, uh, who's uh, a researcher in the United Kingdom, talking about what British schools are doing. And he points out in his essay in this book that actually British students are getting a lot, you know, by the by the late 1990s, we're getting a lot of work in how to think historically. Lots of work in little case studies, doing sort of little analytic projects and research projects. But what wasn't happening, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going beyond what Schimmelt actually says. It's a very carefully constructed essay, but he essentially observes that what wasn't happening was students weren't getting re-examination of large-scale narratives of British life. They, they were sort of left on their own to slot these case studies, as I said before, into, um, into what were probably very traditional modes of, of thinking about the national history. Yeah, yeah no, that's uh, exactly how I feel. And as you were talking about the Saving Private Ryan example, I was brought to my mind when I had seen uh, 1917, which I think the last movie I saw before the pandemic in the theater. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm not a big war movie fan, uh, but I really enjoyed that movie. Um, I, it's not a movie I would watch again because it's war movies are just essentially disturbing to me. And so I, 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 I tried to avoid them, but I did go see that. And I enjoyed it. And I was talking to a friend of mine who hated it because of how the soldiers in it were like disrespectful of their duty and and they were they were nihilistic about like their their duty and and w when you look at band of brothers what you see is a true uh -huh. right it's like those, those that cultural narrative and it was, i don't know that 1917 right. didn't make something up itself right but uh but it is it is a really good example of how like a, a sense of the world is created through cultural materials which is ultimately Absolutely. A justification that I give to people about what I do as a, a teacher of like literature and film, right? It, it, like these are primary means by which people actually come to an understanding of reality. And this, by the way, is another of the uses of broad content coverage mm -hmm. in the kinds of courses I teach, because I can show students that the world of the past was full of disagreements and disillusionment and despair. 
not just the kinds of heroism that students often associate or or heroism or or any like one overwhelming cultural mindset that's often how students think about the past when they come come to 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 college they they think you know the victorian era was like this and world war one was like that and this is how people thought back then and one of the things you can do if you have a highly detailed content coverage in a course is you can show that the past was actually full of people living very complicated lives in all kinds of different ways. I can present students with primary sources showing that, you know, PTSD was a very real thing after the American Revolution, let's say, or, you know, that the survivors of the Civil War often had a very hard time piecing their lives back together, and that includes people who had been emancipated but whose lives did not fit a simple story of liberation. I think content coverage actually allows me to do more of that kind of work, of making the everyday texture of the world of the past a lot less either heroic or villainous yeah. in, in ways that damage students' ability to to think critically about any particular example. Which is again another perfect segue into your last point um, that I want to get to in one second. But um, what you're saying reminds me of a Lionel Trilling essay. Um, I don't know how many people read Lionel Trilling anymore other than me. But um, he, he was critiquing oh, for Parrington's Currents in American Thought. Uh, there was a series of um, books uh, that someone named, I forget his first name, Parrington is the last name. Um, and I actually have a copy of one of those editions in, in various eras. Uh, uh, Vernon, I think. Yeah, Vernon I think, Lewis, I Parrington. Think, think that's right. And, and Trilling was critical of the project on the basis that Currents implies some homogeneity, you know, at this mm -hmm. moment in history, this is the way people thought at this moment of the p history as the current had streamed strom stream downhill. This is how people thought. And he said basically exactly what you said is that within every one of those moments, there are like conflicts and debates and, and, and problems and, and things like that that actually define the reality of American thought at that given moment. There is no sort of nothing as neat as a current uh, to uh, to use a metaphor like that um go ahead you want to and and conflict is good for drama yes <laughs> this is something that people don't appreciate teaching <laughs> teaching you his u.s history or any other history in terms of conflict rather than flows and consensus uh actually makes for much more interesting courses mm -hmm. and that too i think actually requires uh doing a lot more content coverage than people realize because um unless you keep doing it unless you do it again and again and explore the reality of conflict day in and day out across the period you're you're trying to cover i don't think students really grasp it uh, it's too easy otherwise to develop these these simple binary oppositions you know the, the civil rights movement was about you know the civil rights protesters and the segregationists and like this was a moment with these two sides to it, if you haven't done the work to establish the everyday reality of disagreement and uncertainty and hesitation across all kinds of different social groups, you don't really get, I think, the, 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 the real intensity of a moment like the civil rights movement um, in, in all of its complexity. Yeah, that's actually one of the great things about 
John Lewis's uh, March uh, graphic novel memoir, I thought that it went into sort of detail, particularly about the Democratic National Convention um, in the in the 60s mm-hmm. when there was like a, a major intra-party um, disagreement about civil rights within the Democratic National Convention. And there was sort of a counter convention going on. That's something that gets sort of left out of the broad, you know, general knowledge of that movement, right? Where you have clear good guys and clear bad guys, even on the side of the quote unquote good guys, there was a, a serious debate. Yeah. yeah. By the way, uh, with all of this, I'd like to give a, a little shout out to some freely available journal articles that were published a couple of months ago in the Journal of American History. Um, the Journal of American History in March 2020, in that issue, published a section, sort of a roundtable on textbooks and teaching with an introductory section called Democracy and the Teaching of History in Our Perilous Moment, to give you a sense of the the, the tone of the thing. Uh, there were several essays in the collection that were not all in agreement necessarily, and two in particular I view as kind of expressing different sides of the debate I've been describing, with one by Olga Kulisis, uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that close to right, called Meet Me in the Classroom, History Surveys for Democratic Politics. Um, This author is proposing broad exposure to lots of different topics with lots of different stories in the survey story as a a way to to deepen students appreciation for the complexity of the past and the agency of people other than white men Mm. um in contrast to that there's another essay that expresses the view that i'm sort of implicitly arguing against by two other great scholars lindsay marshall and john graham called historical thinking and the democratic mind an apprenticeship approach to Mm. teaching narrative complexity in the history classroom and they lay out an an argument for, you know, much more of a case study based approach of, of having students take a deep dive into a specific topic to see how complicated it really was to uh, to problematize the grand narratives that they've gotten that way. All because this this section of this issue is freely available um, at it's published by Oxford University Press. So there's an OUP webpage where you can access this issue. And without an institutional login, you should be able to access both of those articles. I would recommend that to anyone who's interested in this kind of debate as it unfolds among American historians. I will uh, do my best to find that before publishing this and add that link to the uh, description of this episode. Um, so that's great. And, uh, and as I said, our recent conversation here, uh, really leads nicely into your last point is a primarily tragic and ironically hopeful rather than utopian or dystopian outlook on human affairs. Um, that really stood out to me. You have a line in this section. Here is my alternative. We can put the human struggle itself, the struggle to be right, to be good, to be hopeful, to be joyful, to make the beautiful things, to stop getting worse, to start getting better at the heart of the story. Very beautifully written line. But uh, do, uh, do you want to talk a little, I mean, you've already sort of started talking about this, but do you want have any further thoughts on that? This really flows from my commitment to teaching as if people in the past are real, that they didn't have they haven't solved the problems of their day any more than we have solved the problems of ours. And they are living in a moment where at the end of the day, what human beings have in common is mortality. 
all of us have our our individual stories ending somewhere we will all arrive at the end of what we can accomplish mm. in our time on earth and most of what we do however politically or socially engaged we might be or not be um however much we are in tune with the problems of our people uh, or you know however much we're just trying to keep our heads down and survive fundamentally what we have in common is that we're trying to make the best of life in this condition that we share um and, and that's true whether we're talking about the distant past or the recent past uh, and I try to convey in my teaching that human reality above anything else, not because large-scale social issues and political problems don't matter, but because they matter only because of the reality of every human being on Earth. I think of my teaching essentially as an expression of the philosophy of personalism um, and personalism notoriously uh, as it's associated with say the French um, theorist Emmanuel Mounier or um, uh, Borden Parker Bowen I guess uh, at sort of Boston um, is notoriously a very loose set of ideas but it is fundamentally the belief that uh, that reality boils down to human persons um, that we can't talk about what is real and what is meaningful without talking about the fact that each of us is kind of carrying a little world around with us as we go through life not denying the reality of of earth and plants and animals but stressing that our access to that that reality comes through human eyes and I think in teaching the past, we really do need to convey that real individuals and real groups of people were, were living these, these limited lives and lives that brought them into conflict with each other, lives that ended up being contradictory, lives where dreams didn't pan out or where solutions to problems ended up being counterproductive for other groups of people. Um, you know, when you, when, when I keep talking about the American Civil War because it's full of lots of different, uh, useful examples. When teaching the story of the American Civil War, you really can't do it really well without talking about what a disaster it was for many Native American nations mm. and how Abraham Lincoln, this has come up sometimes in recent controversies over like who should have statues where Abraham Lincoln is not necessarily a heroic figure for native nations in the American West. Um, quite the opposite. Um, in, uh, and the American Revolution presents similar examples. I think we have to teach as if these paradoxes are real, as if they matter, and also as if there's no there's there's no real way to resolve these paradoxes because this is what human beings are like. Mm. We are all, to put it in religious terms, sinning against each other mm. constantly. And the best we can do is to try to sin a little bit less in our everyday lives, to, to try to transgress on each other's rights a little bit less. And we'll never really get there. And that was true of people 200 years ago or 20 years ago. I can't think of a better way to close this out. Uh, that was a, a wonderfully put um, sentiment there. 
and a really great capper to an excellent discussion uh, from Blue Book Diaries is the name of the blog. I highly recommend it. Again, that'll be in the links to the description of the show. Um, Jonathan, do you have any other uh, final thoughts that you want to leave, leave us with? I think my, my final thought is that education as a set of practices should be fundamentally a joyful thing. We are in a moment where it's easy to lose sight of that. We're in a moment where I think debates over how to achieve that joy in the best way for the most people sometimes obscure that fact. But we're trying to make something together in the classroom. And at the end of the day, I hope that we can all kind of recognize that we are on the same side to that extent, even when we have debates that really do matter about how to accomplish that. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm feeling a little less lonely in the world after this conversation. I, I really can't um, agree with you more about anything you said today. It was a really great conversation. I heartily invite you to come back and, and pursue some of these other uh, topics that we bandied about um, throughout the summer. Maybe we can uh, find some time to do that. Jonathan Wilson, thank you so much for this great conversation. And those of you listening, check him out on Twitter. Um, what is your Twitter handle? I... I uh, it's at Jonathan W. Wilson with no vowels in it. Okay, so interesting. J-N-T-H-N-W-W-L-S-N, I guess. A little cognitive puzzle for those of you <laughs> Twitter fans out there. And uh, I will put a link to that Twitter handle in the description of the show notes, along with Blue Book Diaries, a really great resource for people who are both interested in history and teaching, um, or either, hist either history or teaching. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much. What a great conversation, and uh, come back anytime. Thank you.